Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Uh, Yeah, back in September, we started our three-year trek through the Bible, and we've covered a a lot of ground. We, we, We have come, as of two weeks ago, to the end of the book, of, uh, of Genesis and we, you know, the creation and the flood and, and, and the lives of the patriarchs. And uh, so we've covered quite a lot of ground. I, I feel pretty good about that. I hope you do as well. But uh, our Alan Cole, who's a biblical commentator, says that Exodus is the center of the Old Testament. Um, and as we get into the book of Exodus, hopefully we'll see why he would say something like that. But let's just kind of take stock of where we're at in the biblical storyline. So as we come uh, to the book of Exodus, of course, Exodus follows Genesis. And as the book of Genesis comes uh, to an end, we have Jacob and his sons and all of their children safely residing in the land of Egypt in the area we call Goshen uh, with Pharaoh and the Egyptians playing the role of hosts to them out of appreciation for the mighty work of God uh, through Joseph and the benefits that resulted to all of Egypt. There was a lot of appreciation. It was a great time of gratitude and a tremendous time of respect. And then as the book of Exodus opens, uh, over 400 years have passed. And all of that's gone, pretty much, it seems. And that can be kind of frustrating. The uh, things that sometimes change over the course of generations, things that get lost sometimes, and maybe it surprises us a little bit, how quickly a people can forget or be forgotten. But it doesn't surprise God. Because God uh, had foretold all of this exactly to Abraham. And you may recall that when God called Abraham, we read about that in Genesis chapter 12, but then in chapter 15, when God uh, uh, ratifies or, or um, confirms the covenant with Abraham, with a covenant uh, ceremony, he says to Abraham there, he says that your descendants will spend, he, he tells them, you know, your descendants are going to be great like the sand of the sea and, and um, you know, uh, you'll, you'll become a great nation. But he, but he, but he, and he promises the land to, the, to them. But he says that the people for 400 uh, years uh, will we'll spend 400 years in a strange land. So this is uh, Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. You don't need to go there. You can just remember reading it. Uh, but he says that you will, your people will spend 400 uh, years in a strange land uh, where they will be mistreated and enslaved and that he would punish that nation and bring them out of that strange land and that they would come out with great possessions. God 
predicted all that and foretold all that in Gen- to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. So it's interesting, this uh, time period in, in between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, of roughly 400 years, is in some ways analogous to or similar to the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when you add that to the fact that uh, the New Testament says that the call of Jesus um, and his, uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus out of Egypt was a fulfillment of a prophecy out of Egypt. I have I called my son. You've read that in the Christmas story, right, in, in uh, Matthew. Interesting. Yeah, it's just an interesting thought. Um, and you probably knew that already. But, but, but look for those theological patterns. As we're going through the Bible, you look for those theological patterns that recur, and, uh, <laughs> and they're, they're significant <clears throat> because of the prophetic nature of Scripture, Right? how things are foreshadowed. And so the 400 years roughly of Egypt, of Israel in Egypt is a foreshadow of uh, the, the foreshadowing of the 400 years between the Old and the New Testaments, between uh, the deliverance. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, you get it, right? You got it? Have I put you to sleep yet? So... Um, Israel now, remember Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, who had the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of of, uh, Israel, roughly speaking, generally speaking. Well, now there are over 2 million people. Uh, Exodus chapter 12 tells us there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So that's able-bodied men. So Roughly speaking, the estimates are over 2 million people strong. Um, And uh, that's all connected to the promises God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Let's take another look at that promise. Genesis chapter 12. (coughs) And um, just as we put that up, let's just take a moment and pray that God will bless his word to our hearts today. Uh, I guess I should be pointing over here when I do that. Um, <laughs> feel like I've been on vacation. Do you feel like you've been on vacation? Oh yes, you are. You have been on vacation. Some of you are on vacation. Good. Let's let's pray, Lord. T- today we pray for Vance and Elaine and, and for all of the family, and we pray, Lord, that you would um, just be uh, uh, showing your goodness to them. And we thank you, Lord, that you have shown your goodness. We thank you for sparing Vance's life, Lord, as he hung upside down in, uh, in, in that uh, vehicle that they had to cut the top off of to get him out. Lord, we are thankful that you spared his life. And, Lord, we know that you did, and we know that you did it for a reason. And we thank you uh, for that reason. We thank you for your goodness to him. We thank you for your purpose in his life. And we pray for them today, Lord, that you would just... Uh, just uh, continue to bring healing to his, his body and uh, encourage them today, we pray, and pray that you restore him back to uh, uh, full uh, activity and back to home and, and help them with uh, work out those logistics. We pray for others this morning. We've been praying for a number of people. Um, April mentioned uh, Susan earlier, and we certainly want to continue to ask, Lord, for Susan and, and for all of those who... Uh, for her precious family and for those who love her and, and know her. And, Lord, we just pray for, for her, um, continue to ask for her. Lord, raise her up. 
Um, I know that uh, Jim uh, Bird, uh, Lord, needs a touch from you uh, this morning, Lord, and there are many, many others. Uh, thank you um, that we can call upon your name this morning. And as we, as we go through uh, this portion of your word, Lord, that you would just uh, use it. We thank you for your, for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us and we can depend on it so that we can know. And uh, not just know things about life or things about the future, but, Lord, that we can know you. We want to know you, Lord. And that's um, our heart cry this morning. And may, may it be our heart's cry, Lord, that we would know you. And we thank you for your willingness and your desire to be known. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the passage in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, um, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. So there's the first thing. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. That's ramping it up. So that, and this is important, so that what? You will be a blessing. Don't forget that part. Because the descendants of Jacob forgot that part. The descendants of Abraham, sorry, whatever. They forgot that part a lot. And sometimes we forget that part. I will bless those who bless you, it says in verse 3. That's important. I will bless those who bless you. Remember Egypt and Joseph? Egypt didn't understand. But the, the reason, the primary reason why they prospered and why there was so much good happened in Egypt was because of Joseph and his brothers who were heirs to this promise right here. Um, I will bless those who bless you and conversely, him who dishonors you I will curse. That's the other side. Now, is that, the, and we'll just leave that up if you would, Don, but is that relevant to Exodus chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10? Absolutely. Fundamentally relevant. Because Pharaoh welcomed Joseph and his family with open arms. And, and part of the reason he did was because God had al already demonstrated incredible blessing upon Pharaoh, and Egypt because of the promised ones. And, how, and as a result of them welcoming and uh, blessing uh, Israel, they were blessed. So this is all very, very relevant. But, that, but notice what it says there, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then he, God finishes the, the, the promise by saying, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God said um, um, uh, not only that uh, they would be blessed, but they would be a blessing, and that that blessing that they would be would be for the whole world. 
all the nations of the world, which has uh, very significant bearings on what we call the uh, Great Commission that we have in the New Testament and the, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But um, So we've seen all this in the stories of Joseph, the direct fulfillment of these promises. And we need to recognize this, and they say we need not, we have to be careful we don't forget this, because uh, sometimes uh, Israel had a tendency to forget this. In fact, when we come to the New Testament, by the time we get the New Testament and the life of Jesus, there's very little... Um, well, let's just say that between Israel and the nations, there's a lot of hostility, 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 and a lot of bigotry, and a lot of hatred. Um, very little blessing going on. And uh, Derek uh, Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, says this. He says, "Blessing for the world was a vision fitfully seen at first." It disappears between the patriarchs and the kings apart from a reminder of Israel's priestly role in Exodus 19. And later it reappears in the Psalms and the prophets. And perhaps even at its faintest, it's always imparted a some sense of mission to Israel, yet it never became a program of concerted action until the ascension of Jesus. When Jesus sent his church into all the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all the world would be blessed, that all the world would come to know um, the blessing of God upon, upon their lives. And <clears throat> There's another important aspect of this, and again, we're just really talking context here uh, for the book of Exodus, but there's another important aspect of it, and that is that Israel's future is not in Egypt. Right? As the book of Genesis closes, everybody's cozy, everything's good. You know, like, come on down, Dad, bring the bros down, and we'll bring the kids down, and everything's good here. The land of Goshen was an amazing pasture land. Like, you know, there's famine everywhere else, but here in Egypt there's food because of the fulfillment of God's promise. Anyways, um, and everything's good. Uh, but, Israel's future is not in Egypt, right? Egypt is not the promised land, right? And so when Jacob is dying, he calls all the family and he says, listen, you've got to promise me something. Do not bury me here, Right? And if you've read, we didn't here on Sunday morning, we didn't take the time to read those last several chapters of, uh, a few chapters of Genesis. We don't have time to read every, on Sunday morning, if we're going to get through the Bible in three years, we don't, we don't have time to do that. But you, you have time, right, to read that through, and hopefully you did. And so when he died, they took his body back, and they buried him in the promised land. <laughs> and then at the book, at the very end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is on his deathbed, and what does he do? You've read it so you know. He calls in the family, says, listen, you guys got to promise me something. Do not leave my bones in Egypt. God's going to visit you someday here, and he's going to take you out of here. And when he does, take my bones with you. It was important to him. And we could get into all the discussion as to, you know, all, you know ins and outs of that. But the important thing is, is that Egypt is not... Israel's future. And so as we come to the book of, end of the book of Genesis, uh, God is also <laughs> going to use um, the 
change of attitude amongst the Egyptian people to not just take uh, Israel out of Egypt, but to thrust Israel out of Egypt. And to use God's words, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Um, so those, those things are important. So it's not just a going out, but going out big. Not unlike God used the persecution in the book of Acts in the early church. Do you remember reading that or when we studied it in the past? How the church, in spite of uh, all of the understanding they seem to have. Thank you very much, whoever did that. I didn't even see that. Is that for me? Thank you. Thank you. Because my throat is still a little fuzzy. <laughs> of course, it always typically is. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> in spite of, of, of the knowledge they seem to have of the Great Commission, they still seem to lack that, that, that sense that, you know what, this is not just for us. We got to get out there and reach unreached people. And, and, and they just seem to lack that. And God's used persecution. And so they went out in a big way. And it's, it's, so it's like that. And, and you could say this is kind of a foreshadowing of that as well. Because God loves to do that in the, in the, in the, in the scriptures. The revelation of God, he, he uses that as a, as a revelatory tool. You know, the foreshadowing and all the, all the word pictures. And as we go on through here, you're talking about the tabernacle and the wilderness and everything. The, the imagery is, is, is uh, spectacular. I'm looking forward to, uh, to Jesus. So all of this is, is part of that. So anyways, that's enough, enough uh, context for now. Let's, uh, let's get into Exodus uh, chapter 1, uh, reading verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers died, and all that generation died. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Direct result of the promise of God to them, right? Then something changes. Whole generations gone. New generations rise up. Not just generations of Israelites, but generations of Egyptians. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. That's the classical word for that is what? I'm testing you. <laughs> Xenophobia, fear of, fear of strangers and strange cultures. Um, and people that are different. Therefore, verse 11, uh, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work 
as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all, all their work, they ruthlessly uh, made them work as slaves. So it's painting a very graphic picture of oppression and, and, um, and uh, bitter, bitter uh, treatment, mistreatment of, of people. Um, so as the next chapter in the story of uh, God's uh, great story of redemption opens with the book of Exodus, uh, Israel, now numbering in the millions, are enslaved in Egypt. And it's bitter. And they are crying uh, and hurting. So what do you think is going to happen next? What do you think is going to happen? We shouldn't have to guess because we've already seen this delineated throughout the, the book of Genesis and in the lives of the patriarchs. We, we should know for sure that God is not going to just sit idly by and allow this to go on, right? He's going to step in, right? We know that's what's going to happen. But there is this timing thing. God's timing is not our timing. You and I, in our humanity, or I could say our fallen humanity, maybe, I, I'm not sure, but we would... Uh, tend to see no value in waiting. Right? <laughs> we would tend to see no value in waiting to, uh, whenever there was an opportunity to remove hardship or to avoid hardship or suffering of any kind. We would see no value. There's no intrinsic value in, in hardship. Especially when God could simply alleviate it in a second. Just saying the word. And yet, God doesn't always work that way. And this is one of the hardest things for us to accept. We want to see God do a miracle in a moment of time. And when is that moment of time when we want to see God do a miracle? Now. It's always now. Break all the rules, God. Break all the cause and effect rules. Circumvent the so-called natural rhythms of life, of creation and of cause and effect and of, of actions and consequences. Intervene today. We even have a lot of theological conditioning this way because sometimes we are guilty, I think, in our churches of teaching people that they should expect God to act miraculously now. And if we don't, there's something wrong with our faith. If we're not expecting a miraculous action of God on the moment, 
There's something wrong with our faith. We're not, we're not believing enough. Or our believing is not the kind of believing that we need to be believing. And I think that that's a mistake. Because for one thing, there's, there's, there's multiple problems, I think, with that, with that kind of teaching or attitude that we're prone to. But, but one of the problems is it ignores the fact that God's timing is not our timing. And that God's timing is perfect. Can you imagine having perfect timing? It's, timing is important, isn't it? You know? Some of you young people out there meet a young, young guys meet a young gal or whatever, and it's like, whoa, this is, this is getting serious. I think I need to pop the question. When am I going to do that? <clears throat> or maybe you're married and you have children and it's time to have the talk. When am I going to do that? We could go on and think about all the instances in our lives when timing is such a critical thing. But have you ever thought about the fact that God has perfect timing? It's it's made even more mind-boggling by the fact that God takes everything into account. So here's the thing. God has perfect timing, and he takes everything into account. That's where we really come up short, isn't it? Because <laughs> what we take into account is us. The end. Period. And God, in all his greatness, takes absolutely everything into, uh, into account. Now, over going back to Genesis and the early chapters of Genesis and creation, we've tried to make a big deal about the fact that the scriptures um, are given to us by God with the intention of God that we would know him, that we would come to know him. And so the re scriptures reveal God to us, that God is great, that God is good, God is um, faithful. God is sovereign. God sees. God hears. God directs. God hears the cries of his people. But his timing is perfect. I have a little note here in my, in my notes. Uh, written, handwritten. Um, God is a God of miracles, but God also uses the ordinary. Have you ever thought about that? We identify miracles with God, but we never, we, 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 well, we seldom seem to identify the ordinary day-to-day -day things in life with God. It's like we're waiting for God to show up. Newsflash, God is already at work in your life. He's already at, at work in your life. And, and God uses ordinary things. And praise God, he uses ordinary people too, right? Um, back in Genesis 15, something else God said to Abraham. When, remember I mentioned to you uh, and I think we put up uh, the uh, earlier um, part of it. But something else God told Abraham is, 
and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, or not yet complete. So God's mind is also on the people in the land. Right? Like God is taking everything into <laughs> into account. Um, yeah. So the people um, are, are are there and they're hurting. They're oppressed. They're being uh, cursed. But they're still increasing. They're still thriving. They're still being fruitful. Verse uh, 15. Time is passing. Things are escalating. Sometimes things have to get worse before they can get better. Is that just a cute saying, or is that actually true? Well, it would seem, biblically, that it is actually true, that sometimes things do need to get worse before they get better. And that hopefully that could encourage some of us who are going through really hard times. I hope it will. Verse 15 to 22 of Exodus chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shipra, and the other... Pua, that's a good name. Um, <laughs> when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall live. She shall live. It's kind of the opposite of what it is in many countries in Asia right now. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. Which might have been a half-truth, but there probably was some truth in there. Our women are not like your sickly women. Uh, so God dealt well with the midwives because of that, verse 20. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall, you shall let every daughter live. Now this piece of history is the beginnings of a recurring theme in Scripture of anti-Semitism, uh, hatred and towards the mistreatment of God's people. Uh, recorded not only in scripture, but also in history. And I'm not going to give you a history lesson on that. I think most of you are probably aware of some of those things. Um, but at this point in the Exodus uh, account, we are introduced to a new biblical character, somebody we have not met up to this point. And uh, we're going to meet him uh, now here in Exodus chapter 2 which begins, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Who's Levi? Pardon? One of the brothers, sons of Jacob. Third born. Levi, if you go back, or if you remember back. It's 
one of the benefits of going through in order. We know what he's talking about. When it says here, you know, a Levite, we know he was who he was talking about. And is that important? Well, just think about this for a minute. You come to the New Testament, and Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and he says, there's this man who's on his way down to Jericho, and he fell in among thieves, and they beat him up, and they leave him half dead beside the road, and along comes, uh, uh, I don't forget who's first, the priest or the Levite. But anyways, along comes a, uh, a Levite, I think it is, and he passes by on the other side, doesn't even help the guy. Well, you don't have any idea who a Levite was. What's that story? How do you interpret that story? What, you know, what, you're missing part of the story. And then it says, and then a priest came by. Well, who were the priests? As we go on here, we're going to find out that uh, this Moses that we are being in, going to be introduced to in a minute had a brother named Aaron who became the first high priest. He was, they were Levites. They were of the tribe of Levi. Levi. And so that's where the, the Levites came from. We're going to be reading more about that and more about the priesthood as we go on. And then it says, Jesus said, but then a Samaritan came along. Well, we don't know who the Samaritans were either if you don't read the Old Testament. So can you understand the stories of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus without understanding the Old Testament? Yes, but not very well. So these things are all important, and that's just a commercial break. Um, you could also go to the genealogies in Luke chapter uh, 3 and Matthew chapter 1, I think it is, where the, the gospel writers trace the lineage of Jesus all the way back, in Matthew's case, all the way back to Abraham, and in Luke's case, all the way back to Adam. They kept track of all that stuff. Why? Because it's important. So you can know how God works in history. It's really, really kind of cool, but if you don't know it, it's not so cool. Um, Chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. This is hilarious. We're reading here now. I hope you got your funny bone turned on here because this is hilarious. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and she placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister... Who would be who? Miriam. We haven't read about her yet, but that's coming, okay? Aaron and Moses had a sister, Miriam. <laughs> Which, by the way, in the New Testament is Mary, just so you know. I, I don't mean... In name. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, in name. Um, and his sister, Miriam, stood at the, a distance... Uh, watching to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Ah, who can resist a crying baby? No woman I know. But do you see, you're starting to see the, the uh, irony here? Israel is crying. Who's going to help? You could say that her heart was softened. She took pity on him. Right? That's what it says. And said, this is one of the Hebrew children. She knew it was a Hebrew child. She knew what her father had said, but 
He's crying. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so Miriam comes up and says, I got an idea. Do you want me to go and get, uh, uh, call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh said to her, or Pharaoh's uh, daughter said to her, you know, that's a really good idea. Go. So the girl went and got her mother. <laughs> this is hilarious. So Pharaoh's daughter said to her, to the mom, we take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. This is the part of the movie, if you're watching the movie, where you're slapping your knee and you're laughing, right? And it says that she named him Moses because she drew him out of the water because the name Moses means roughly pulling out. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, you haven't read this before. Because he does have a sense of humor. And he's not, a, I'm not above using a pun. Because the Bible is full of puns. And God loves using puns. Especially when he can use them to make a point. And he is about to make a really big point right here. Because in all their fear. In Pharaoh's fear. Uh, <laughs> it is so ironic. That the potential deliverer for the people. Is living under his roof, eating off his table, and being benefited from all that he had to offer in the riches of Egypt. The Bible goes on to talk in Acts chapter 7, says that Moses grew and was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He attended the finest universities, in Cairo. I don't even know if Cairo existed then, but you know what I'm saying. God has a sense of humor. So Moses was a prince of Egypt. He walked like an Egyptian. He talked. <laughs> he talked like an Egyptian. He looked like an Egyptian. Later on, when he's out in the desert and the Midianite uh, priest's daughters find, uh, he, he, you know, they, when they come running home to tell their father, they said, he said, you know, how are you doing back here already or something like that? And he said, he said, this Egyptian guy helped us. Talking about Moses. He looked like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He was, by all appearances, an Egyptian. But he really was a Hebrew. And one day, it says in verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, <coughs> according to Stephen, I believe, in Acts 7, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, Moses was 40 years old by this time. So he was grown up, grown up, okay? One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people 
and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. See, he knew who he was, didn't he? He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the, in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill us, or kill me, rather, as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. And it was known, because verse 15 says, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, where he sat down by a well. This is the well where the girls find him. All right? Guys, take note. There's uh, a lot that happens around wells in Scripture. Have you noticed that already? Yeah, wells were significant places. Uh, we'd love to talk some about that, but that would have to be another day. <laughs> so, here's the thing. Moses, at 40 years old of age, has these impulses to deliver his people from their suffering. But Moses isn't ready yet at least not according to God's timeline. Another 40 years pass. Think about it. Now, some would suggest this. Just follow me on this. Some people would suggest that, <coughs> excuse me, that God had to uh, take Moses and, and that Moses needed to learn, um, uh, that he spent 40 years learning the ways of the world and now he needs to spend 40 years learning the ways of God. Because Moses is about to enter a period uh, in the wilderness of approximately 40 years. He goes from the palaces of Egypt to the pasture land. Yeah, it was pasture land. Um, in the, in the, in somewhere in the Sinai uh, Peninsula somewhere. And he spent... Uh, 40 years, uh, they would say, people would say he spent 40 years in Egypt learning to be a, a leader, but God took 40 years for Moses in the wilderness to learn how to be a shepherd. Now, this is a tempting line of thought, uh, but it's also rather cynical. Um, because if that were true in an, any kind of an absolute sense, then... Uh, that would mean that the first 40 years were more than a waste, right? They were actually counterproductive, if you take that view of what God is doing here. And I, I, uh, I struggle with that view personally. It, what I tend to think is that God used both. I believe God used the first 40 years in Egypt to shape Moses. Now, his shaping would have looked very different. That's for sure. He would have learned different lessons in the wilderness than he learned in Egypt. That's for sure. Think about your own life. Think about this. How often do we learn from our mistakes? Hopefully. Hopefully we learn from our mistakes. And sometimes we can learn more from our mistakes than we can from our successes, right? 
Um, <coughs> it's, uh, according to my clock up here, it is 12 now, so let's try to see if we can, see if we can uh, get to some kind of a stopping point here. Verses 16 through 25. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. This is, all of this stuff's important because of what's going to happen. And I know that most of you know what's going to happen here to some degree. I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock somewhere if you didn't know that God used Moses to, to uh, rescue or deliver at, or to lead uh, Israel out of Egypt, right? I mean, they even made a Disney movie about it, right? Um, and then there's Charlton Heston, right? We wa I watched Ben Hur over Christmas holidays. That was kind of cool. I've never watched. Uh, I've never watched it without falling asleep before because it's so long. But it was good. Anyways, all right. Back. Focus. 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 Verse six. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and they drew water, and he filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. But the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and he saved them, and he watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, uh, Ruel, who's also referred to as Jethro later on, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, and an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and drew water for us to, uh, and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, uh, well, then where is he? <laughs> why, why have you left him there? Call him that he may eat with bread with us. And the rest, as they say, is history. Because Moses ends up marrying one of these girls. He says, Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zephorah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have uh, seen, been a sojourner in a foreign land. Then in verse 23, following, it says this. <coughs> Excuse me. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. This passage is not meant to imply that God suddenly goes, Oh, I didn't realize that. I learned something new today. Rather... God knew in the sense that when we wonder whether God knows, the answer is yes, God knows. God, do you even know what I'm going through? Yeah, he does. God, do you see all of this crap I'm having to deal with right now? Yep, he does. Yep. Um, now, the prospect of... Uh, of speaking intelligently to chapters 3 and 4 in the time that we have remaining, which is zero time, is a silly notion. So you need to read that on your own. Okay? But I will, I will, uh, I, I do want to read the first several verses of chapter 3 because um, that's where we'll, we'll stop. You can go on and read the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 <laughs> in uh, preparation, if you, if you will, uh, for next week when we start talking about the deliver the uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the ten plagues and the actual uh, yeah that starts starts in chapter uh, five 
<clears throat> now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. This is a high point in theological history. This is a high point in biblical revelation right here that we're, that we're reading right now. You, you understand that I, I think, I hope I, you, you recall when we were talking about Abraham and how significant Abraham was in, in how many times his name occurs in the New Testament. The name Moses occurs more in the New Testament than any other name except for the name of Jesus. When the day, men and, uh, and women of Jesus' day talked about the Old Testament, they often used this phrase. They would say, Moses and the prophets. It's significant who this guy was, more importantly, what God uh, revealed to him. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, or do not keep coming near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then notice, verse 7 and following, Then the Lord said, I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, uh, Hivites and Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with them, or oppress, oppression which uh, the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you uh, may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What follows this is a, um, <coughs> is a fairly lengthy back and forth between... Um, Moses and God about um, Moses' insistence um, that he that God has the wrong guy. <clears throat> I mean, there's so much that could be said about this. Um, Moses is settled. You know, uh, he's 80 years old. I'm sure his uh, his aspirations uh, have probably uh, when it comes to uh, making a difference for his people, um, has probably faded into uh, the sunset of the Midian desert uh, long ago. Um, he's just living life now. Um, he starts making excuses. He says, uh, who am I to do that? Who am I to, who am I to do this? And, and interestingly enough, um, God's response to him in verse 12 is, I will be with you. <coughs> Let me see if I can try to uh, bring this to a, a point. 
Um, God, Moses says, who am I to do this? I can't even talk in front of people. To do this, you've got to be able to talk in front of people. You, you can't just waltz into Egypt and say nothing. Um, who am I to do this? And, and God's response is, I will be with you. And Moses' response back to God is, who are you? He's already told him, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moses wants a name. He says, you know, if you read through, you'll see, he says there, if I go down to the people, to our people, and I go back in Egypt, and I go and I gather our people together, and, you know, and tell them that you sent me, who am I going to tell them to send me? What is your name? And it is in this passage of Scripture here where God tells Moses his proper name, his personal name. Now, we do not have time to go into this in any kind of detail, but you really should make it uh, a goal to study this on your own. Um, Don, can you bring up the... Um, that is the Hebrew script for the word that is uh, God's personal name, his proper name, the name that he told Moses he was to be called. Um, now, we don't know, there's some things we don't know about this name. Uh, one thing we don't know is the exact pronunciation. Uh, for, for years, it was, uh, it was pronounced Jehovah, but that was because of a little bit of confusion with Latin uh, vowels. The reason we don't know exactly how this name was pronounced is because when the ancient Hebrews wrote, they didn't include vowels in their writing in their script. They only included consonants, four consonants. And when the Jewish people, scribes, and this is not just a history lesson. Think about this. When the Jewish scribes would uh, write the name, which we believe was pronounced something like Yahweh, they wouldn't even pronounce it. They wouldn't include the. Uh, they would put uh, substitute vowels from Adonai, which was a more generic name for God. Because, and this is what they thought. Okay, they thought that if they pronounced the name of God and they got it wrong, that would be the worst thing that could possibly happen. So they didn't. They didn't say it. They never said God's name. And so when they wrote, they, they just they wrote it out, and, but they would not talk about it or pronounce it, and uh, they would usually substitute. Even to this very day, there are uh, Jewish uh, rabbis and scholars who will s substitute other names for the name of God, and they'll talk about the name. You need to do this for the name. Because they were afraid of misusing God's name. Now, in your Bibles, the translators did a very similar thing. They took the word Lord, L-O-R-D. And if you look in your Bible, you will see that when God reveals himself to Moses, and I know I'm going way over with this, I know. 
you will see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and every time you see that in your Bible, in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh. It occurs over 6,000 times in the Old Testament, more than any other name that's given to God because it is God's personal name. It is his proper name, his proper name. If I call you Rick, I don't say the Rick, right? Because Rick is your personal name. This is God's personal name, Yahweh. When the translators do it with capital L's, they do that, L-O-R-D, they do that as a kind of a, of a linguistic way of sending a message to you as a reader that you will know this is Yahweh. But unfortunately, what it's done is, uh, in, in, in taking this route, it's done the same thing that kind of the, Israel, the Jewish scribes got into, is that we don't realize when we see that we're talking about God's personal name. Now, right now it's 14 minutes after 12. How many of you knew that? And I have no idea how I'm going to get out of this here, right here because this is so important and so profound and has such far-reaching consequences that there's no way on God's earth that I can make this, uh, bring this to a, a, a sufficient uh, application point. Um, I'm just going to have to try to, to, uh, to say this to you, that the other names for God are legitimate, and they describe God. You may have names. You may have nicknames. Maybe you call Glenn Honey. Do you ever call him Honey? Right? Yep, see? Um, but Honey's not your name, Glenn, right? Really. <laughs> it's kind of like a title. Did you know that in Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven, heavens and the earth. That's Elohim. It means mighty one or mighty ones. In Genesis chapter 2, when God made man, he went from speaking things into existence to getting his hands right down in the dust and the dirt. And, it, and there it's not Elohim. It's Yahweh. And the reason for that is because Elohim is more of a generic type of name for God. Yahweh is very personal. Elohim and some of the other names for God in the Bible speak to God's amazing transcendence, that he is, um, that he is separate from and independent from all and above all and beyond all. But Yahweh is God's covenant name. The name of the God who gets involved in people's lives and makes promises. It's his covenant name. Yahweh is the faithful one who shows up and gets involved and fulfills his promises. And there's so much that could be said and probably should be said about that today that's not going to get said. So I would encourage you to um, send me an email if you don't know where to look. I'll send you some, you know, some links or something, but it's just so, so good <laughs> and so important. And I'll close with this. In the New Testament, when the Jews were giving Jesus a hard time about some of the things he was saying and some things he was doing, at one point, they started going on about Abraham. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. 
The word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, literally means I am. Or I am that I am. Or I am the God who is. And of course, if you've been around Bible teaching and gospel preaching at all, you fully realize that Jesus was making a very direct, serious claim to deity. Think about it. Before Abraham was, I am. Because I am is God's name. God's personal name. Think about that. And share it with uh, the Jehovah's Witness friends next time I knock on your door. Anyways, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's close. <coughs> I apologize for not uh, using better, the, better using the time because I find sometimes the context is so important. If we're really going to understand these things, we must. And that's one of the reasons why I'm personally enjoying I don't know about you. Maybe you're not feeling the same way. But I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting so much out of going through this and, and seeing God, you know, expanding that revelation of himself and who he is uh, to his people. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand. And uh, hopefully, <coughs> hopefully you got... But uh, God wanted you to, to get from this today. And, uh, and I was serious about the email thing. Steve at sharethejourney.ca. Um, huge subject. Some of the stuff I didn't say. First time the word holy appears in the Bible. Exodus chapter 3, take off your sandals for where you are standing is holy ground. There is tons of stuff in there that we never, we never looked at. Important stuff. Bible stuff. Um, let me encourage you to study the word. Study the word. Read the word. Don't just think church or trendy church be in the word please Lord I thank you for this great host of people for the time we spent together today I pray that you would bless these things to our heart and, and God together we thank you that you are a God who wants to be known that you are a God who makes promises and you are a God who steps in and fulfills those promises. And we thank you, Lord, as we pray this prayer and we think of Jesus, our Savior, and how he is the ultimate fulfillment of all your promises to us, not just for Israel, not just for us, but for the whole world. Help us, Lord, to appreciate and to understand your great love for us and your interest in our lives. And help us, Lord, to press hard into that relationship with you by uh, your will and according to your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.